In this weekend episode, three segments from this week's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. First, Eugene Malero, senior congressional reporter for Transport Topics, discusses federal oversight of the freight rail industry in the wake of the toxic train derailment in Northeast Ohio. Then Josh Golan from the child advocacy group Fair Play discusses bipartisan efforts to protect kids' safety online. Plus, Research America president and CEO Mary Woolley discusses federal investments for medical science and technology research. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, Eugene Malero from Transport Topics on the federal response to the toxic train derailment in Ohio. A number of lawmakers are pushing for answers about the government oversight of that freight train derailment. First of all, what is the federal responsibility? Uh, Which department is responsible for overseeing um, the rail industry in particular, but also the transport of these chemicals? Yeah, so there's really two. Uh, The Federal Railroad Administration right now, they're really the primary regulator of the freight rail industry as well as Amtrak, but mostly the safe, they have a lot of regulations and a lot of stipulations on how you can transport all things, commodities as well as chemicals. The classification of hazardous materials, that really falls under the purview of the Pipelines and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, the acronym is FIMSA, and they're the ones that really work closely with industry, the chemicals industries, as well as commodities industries, and Homeland Security as to the communication of the transport of these chemicals in order to regulate their labeling, their marking, and what information is delivered to communities, to agencies at the state level, and uh, in private industry. And then the Secretary of Transportation, his office is the one that works very, and obviously in the managerial role, to ensure that the sub-agencies are in direct contact with private industry, vice versa. So in a response to uh, an incident like this, and we'll see some comments from the EPA administrator in a bit, but the primary responsible in terms of the federal level is the Federal Railroad Administration? When it comes to commercial transportation, uh, yes. Now, in an incident like this one, this accident, we, because there's, there's spillage of these chemicals, the Envir- Environmental Protection Agency has been brought in to help manage, to help um, state other FEMA and other uh, agencies with the recovery and the cleanup efforts of these chemicals. But when it comes to the ensuring the safe transport of these uh, chemicals, as well as commodities, petroleum for instance, that really falls in the Federal Railroad Administration. And then right now we're in a position where these federal agencies are really 
not the lead agency right now is the independent investigator, the National Transportation Safety Board. Yeah. They're the ones taking the lead right now in doing um, an assessment of the area, the accident area, they call it the hot zone, as well as uh, doing, you know, taking an, a complete survey of what took place. And they're, invest they're actually considered the gold standard by stakeholders and industries throughout uh, in their investigations. Right now they have a preliminary information that there was a malfunction to one of the cars. Mm. Uh, and these, their investigation is likely to take about a year or so. And give us an idea of a range. You mentioned petroleum, a range of the type of chemicals that are transported every day by rail across this country. There are there's several million um, mm. tons of chemicals uh, th throughout the year that are transported around our freight rail systems. They range the entire, for instance, in, you know, in, the, in East Palestine, there was uh, reports of uh, vinyl chloride. You know, so vinyl chloride is one of the chemicals that is prevalent in the transport uh, of these freight rails. Petroleum, oil, uh, petroleum products and byproducts are very common uh, for, to make plastics. Also, uh, chemical waste, when uh, factories produce certain items, they do create waste and that those chemicals are often shipped by rail uh, throughout the country to you know be uh, to their final destination and the routes that these chemicals are they are shipped they are dependent on the severity of the uh, sensitivity of the chemical um, and so the, depending on the uh, high the danger of that chemical it will be transported in a less densely populated area. And if it's a banal chemical, it can go in a highly dense, densely populated area. Are there federal regulations that tell the, the, that make the rail companies or the chemical companies for that matter, responsible for letting jurisdictions know that certain chemicals are being moved through their, 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 uh, their area, through a town, through a county, through a state? My reporting and research has, I have arrived at a very comprehensive answer. That there's not a real easy answer mm. to that question. Because of the sensitivity of some of these chemicals, uh, agencies such as the Department of Homeland Security wanna make sure that they're not widely known because they have potential, you know, they don't wanna create potential dangers uh, with the transport of these chemicals. Nevertheless, private industry and the regulators of Federal Railroad Administration have indices and manifest these records of what is being transported. And for uh, there are cases where state agencies may request the information and industry or the regulators will provide them information. Or in other instances, depending on these chemicals or the chemical waste, uh, the, the companies will alert a certain town or a certain state jurisdiction that these chemicals are being transported. At the same time, state departments of transportation are made aware this, the, of the nature of the freight routes. So they know that a certain freight route, for instance, will be predominantly petroleum products. Another freight route will be predominantly uh, you know, chloride or you know, other chemical waste. Uh, and then communities are informed by their state jurisdictions 
of the potential that these chemicals are being transported through those rail lines. Yeah, well, it's even on, on the level of informing the local first responders. You know, there's particular hazmat teams, hey, th hey this particular load is coming through uh, our town or our, you know, our county. Uh, best practice from the, f according to the f freight rail industry, one of their best practices approach is to maintain along their uh, freight rail lines a crew, an emergency crew, and in the event of an accident, those crews are equipped with the information that is being transported, and they work with local jurisdictions, first responders, to alert them of what has is being transported. And we saw that in this instance, uh, and that's why with industry, uh, the company, as well as you know, first responders and EPA, they were able to, according to those, the officials in charge, contain the spillage. That was Eugene Malero from the trade publication Transport Topics on federal oversight of the freight rail industry. Next, a discussion about keeping kids safe online, a growing interest of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. And with us next is Josh Golan, who is executive director of Fair Play. We're going to be talking this segment about kids and online safety. Mr. Golan is not only the executive director, he testified this week before Senate committee looking into that uh, very issue. Josh Golan, tell us about your organization, Fair Play. What's your mission and how are you funded? Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Fair Play is an advocacy organization dedicated to building a world where kids can be kids free from the false promises of marketers and the harmful manipulations of uh, big tech. So we work um, to keep kids safe when they're online and also to make sure that uh, they can get the offline time that they need in order to, to, to really thrive. Um, we are funded by uh, foundations and individual donations. And in fact, we have a strict policy of not taking any corporate donations uh, in particular from the tech industry. What is the purpose of not taking uh, donations from the tech, tech industry? Uh, our commitment is to the well-being of children, and we believe when you take money from the tech industry, um, it starts to cloud your judgment, and, and perhaps the policies you advocate for are not the ones that are best for children, but are the best for industry. So we want to make sure that uh, we are representing kids and families. Just, um, um, we'll start broadly on this. Uh, how much time are kids spending uh, in online platforms, and particularly with social media? Yeah, so um, uh, preteens are now spending about five and a half hours a day on online uh, just for entertainment. So watching videos on social media, um, not, that's not a figure doesn't include homework or the time that they're in school. And teens, it is now up to eight and a half hours a day just for entertainment. Um, if you kind of think about a 24-hour day and throw in a little time for sleep and being in school, that's just about all the time that they're not in school and not sleeping. The, the, the publication Axios did a recent story about the types of social media, change in the percentage of teens who use uh, selected social media platforms. Being a little older, it's hard to keep track sometimes of what uh, kids are, are, are watching online, but I want to get your reaction to the changes that Axios shows uh, that kids are uh, doing up from between 2014-2015 uh, to current day to 2022. The use of Instagram is up 10%. The use of Snapchat is up 18%. Meanwhile, Facebook down 39%, Twitter down 10%, and Tumblr down 9%. 
When, and as you mentioned, YouTube viewing, very, very strong among kids, 95%. So in particular with Instagram and Snapchat, why are those viewerships up that much? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Um, first of all, Facebook is considered a platform uh, for, for people my age these days, and so um, young people don't want to be caught dead on, on places where their parents and grandparents hang out. Um, but Snapchat, I think, has, has really risen in popularity because of the, the disappearing message feature, I think, is, is something that kids find, you know, it's become a place where kids communicate with each other um, and, and in group chats very much. Uh, TikTok is one you didn't mention. That's been a huge rise um, over the last several years. And that's really, I think, because their algorithm and their video, short form video platform is so good at capturing kids' attention and getting them sort of in that translite state where they're just going from one video to the next. Instagram is a platform that's, um, you know, particularly popular with young girls, um, all focused around appearance and and uh, you know the, the filters that you can use on pictures in order to make yourself uh, you know uh, look in a way that maybe you don't look in real life. Um, so a lot of these platforms are, that have risen in po popularity are really these visual-based platforms um, where you're either consuming or posting videos or pictures. And um, interestingly, the research shows that those ones can be the worst for for teen mental health. Josh Golan, what does your organization, what does Fair Play do to help uh, parents? Number one, and also so teachers or administrators, number two, in helping them cope with uh, kids' use of social media. Yeah, I mean, we certainly um, offer advice to parents and, and to school districts, but our focus is really much more on what the platforms themselves are doing and how we can create policies that will create a healthier media environment for kids. We feel that at this point, um, you know, when kids are spending eight and a half hours a day on, on these platforms, um, it's unrealistic to expect parents to uh, monitor that all of that go, what's going on. Um, and also, you know, one of the things people, some people say, well, just keep your kids off these platforms. The fact of the matter is, as, as kids enter adolescence, the most important thing for them is to be where their peer group is. And if all of your peers are online, then parents are faced with a really terrible choice. Do I isolate my, my kid from, from their peers and, and worry about them being lonely and, and isolated? Or do I let them go online and, and the, where there's all this harmful uh, content and, and these platforms are shaping who these kids are? So it's a, it's a terrible catch-22 for parents. And so what we're really concentrated on is how can we make these platforms both safer and less addictive so that kids aren't compelled to be on them so much. I mean, one of the things that I'm sure we'll talk more about today, Bill, is that these platforms are designed to addict our kids. They're designed to get them to check as often as possible. And the ways that they do that um, are often extremely harmful to kids. And so um, there's absolutely things that parents could do. And I would say the most important thing you can do is no devices allowed in the bedrooms. Um, establish a time when you're taking those phones from your kids or shutting down your Wi-Fi router for the night. Um, uh, because one of the things we know is that um, these devices and social media platforms are really, really disrupting kids' sleep, and um, not mm -hmm. getting enough sleep is, is linked to a whole bunch of bad outcomes. Um, but again, our focus, um, we think parents need help right now. We think that we are in a mental health crisis, that we are in a social media addiction crisis, and parents need help, and, and putting this all the burden on parents to fix this is not gonna work. That addictive factor you talked about is not, doesn't just apply this platform, it's just to kids. It's uh, adults as, as well. So did I, does that mean addressing that very issue? That very issue pro applies broadly to kids and adults in terms of the addictive nature of uh, online online platforms. 
That's absolutely true, and uh, I think um, most adults I know, including myself, really struggle to moderate our own use. Um, children's brains are developing, uh, and they are more vulnerable to the, uh, to the design tactics and the pressure tactics um, and the peer pressure to be on social media. I mean, I would love to see these platforms be designed in different ways that were more healthy for adults as well, but the most important thing from my perspective is how can we at least make the changes that allow our kids to grow up in a healthier media environment and not feel like, if I'm not on Instagram and TikTok 24/7, I'm letting my friends down. I'm missing out on the most exciting thing going on the world, on the world, so that kids can get things like sleep and exercise and those face-to-face -face interactions, which are so important to developing empathy and relationships um, and camaraderie and and teamwork. Um, so, so, um, so, yeah. I, I, you know, I would love for this stuff to be better for adults. I quit Twitter years ago because I think it's a, a, a <laughs> it's kind of a, a vast wasteland. But, um, but our focus is really on children and their developing brains and their vulnerabilities. And how do we stop tech camp companies from taking advantage of Josh that? Josh Golan is our guest. He's with uh, Fair Play. We welcome, in particular, we welcome parents. And our line for parents is uh, parents of kids or. Uh, uh, teens as well. 202-748-8002 is the line. 202-748-8000 is the line for those of you in the eastern and central time zones. And it's 202-748-8001, Mountain and Pacific. You testified this week before the, the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. I want to hear uh, some of what you had to say to that committee, but I want to play you the comments of Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on a particular issue that he focused on in that hearing. Here's Senator Whitehouse. So um, we're having kind of a bipartisan moment here today with the Blumenthal-Blackman legislation, with the Durbin-Graham hearing. And I would be prepared to make a bet that if we took a vote on a plain Section 230 repeal, it would clear this committee with virtually every vote. The problem where we bogged down is that we want 230 plus. We want to repeal 230 and then have XYZ. And we don't agree on what the XYZ are. Um, I would encourage uh, each of you, if you wish, to take a moment when the hearing is over and write down what you would like to see with respect to Section 230. If this is not your area, fine, don't bother. Um, would you be happy with a flat Section 230 repeal? Would you like to see Section 230 repealed with one, two, or three other things added? What would your recommendations be as we look at this? Josh Golan with Fair Play, what was your, first of all, Section 230, if you want to briefly explain that for our viewers and, and listeners, and, and what was your reaction after hearing that from Senator Whitehouse? Yeah, so, um, for, so for the viewers, um, Section 230 is a law that says that um, online platforms, social media platforms, are not responsible for the content uh, that their users post, that they're not liable if I you know, post something threatening to attack you um, or, or say something libelous, that the platform itself is not responsible for what the users post. What has been extremely unfortunate is that um, uh, courts have, uh, have interpreted this very, very broadly um, to mean that the platforms basically have no liability for anything. So we think that there's a clear difference 
if, um, you know, if I just say, you know, if I, I post content that encourages kids to cut themselves, um, which there's content like that all over these platforms, that just the existence of that is not something necessarily that the social media platforms should be uh, liable for, because I posted it, they can't catch everything that we post. But once those, um, al those platforms algorithms start recommending that content to kids, um, putting it into their feed, saying this is the content that you're probably going to be interested in, and the reason that they put that content there is because they think it's what's going to keep kids scrolling and on their devices as long as possible. So once those companies put their fingers on the scale, in order Order to maximize their profit motive, we don't think that they should be protected for that anymore. So we think that Section 30 should be amended to make clear that the way that these platforms are designed and that their algorithms are not protected speech, um, which would allow us to continue to have social media platforms where there is user-generated content, but make them much safer because the platforms would have to be really careful about what they were pushing on kids. I'm going to show our viewers some of the policy recommendations from Fair Play as I ask you sort of the policy recommendations that you gave to the Senate Judiciary Committee when, in your testimony. Sure. So um, we, what I talked about in my testimony and what Fair Play believes is first and foremost, or, or not first and foremost, but first, um, we need to expand privacy protections to teens. We have one law that protects kids online, the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act. First of all, it's 25 years old. Second of all, it only covers kids up until their 13th birthday. Um, there is no other context in which we treat a 13-year-old like an adult, but that's what we do on the internet every single day. So they, teens need protections too. Um, we need to ban data-driven advertising to young people. Uh, data-driven advertising allows companies to target kids with extreme precision to exploit their vulnerabilities. Um, a few years ago, Facebook had a memo that they uh, gave to advertisers where they were bragging about how they could m target ads to kids at the exact moment that they were feeling bad about themselves, including when they were feeling bad about their bodies. We don't want that, you know, kids teens insecurities and their natural vulnerabilities we don't want that to be a business opportunity and all of the data that's collected for these advertising purposes is used in other harmful ways as well um, number three we believe that these companies should have a duty of care to prevent and mitigate the worst harms to kids right now their only obligation is to their shareholders to maximize profits well how do they maximize profits by keeping kids on as long as possible and serving them the content that's most likely to keep them online regardless of whether that content is good for them or not so we need to put some brakes on that business model and say that you have an obligation to kids and families as well um, we also think that all the default settings on these platforms for kids should be on the most protective settings by default. Right now, if you're a parent or a kid yourself and you want to have a safer experience, you've got to figure out, work your way through a maze of like 50, 60 settings um, in order to figure out how to do it. It's not easy. Why not start from a place where we, you know, things like location are turned off by default. Settings are private by default rather than being public. And then if parents want to change those settings to make them less protective, they can do so. But why not start from a safe spot? Um, 
We think that there, we should prohibit the use of dark patterns, these manipulative tactics that are used on all of us um, in order to keep us online longer. Um, so, so design tricks, ways of uh, setting up your platform that cause take advantage of psychological vulnerabilities to keep you online longer. Um, and we think that we need more enforcement. So we think that there should be a division at the Federal Trade Com Commission um, dedicated solely to protecting children online. Right now, um, you know, there's just not enough enforcement of existing laws. And if we get more protections for children legislation, we're going to need even more regulation. So it's important that we have a cop on the beat that's actually making sure that these policies that we want to see are enforced. That was Josh Golan from the child advocacy group Fair Play. Next, Research America president and CEO Mary Woolley discusses federal investments for medical, science, and technology research. First of all, tell us about your organization. What is your, what is your mission? Research America is an alliance of, and it's a nonprofit alliance of industry, patient groups, academia, and independent research institutes, scientific societies, and philanthropy all determined to make research for health in particular a much higher national priority. And we also stand firmly for science and technology broadly stated so that, as I said, we can make sure that science and technology, medical research delivers on its promise, better health, a stronger nation, more prosperous and secure. One of the reasons we're having Mary Willie on with us this morning, the president several times in his State of the Union speech last week uh, called on more uh, federal funding for areas of advanced research in the fields of medical, of medicine, science and technology. Tell us some of the things broadly, Mary Willie, that you heard from the president that piqued your interest um, from the speech. Well. President Biden has long been a champion of medical and health research, cancer research in particular, which he often refers to, but also a champion of science broadly. I was privileged to be at the signing ceremony, very much a bipartisan affair, for the Chips and Science Act last summer. Now, Chips and Science is about catching up. And uh, we have just, um, I want to refer to a uh, diagram, uh, a chart that's, that you have there about China. The United States is now in a position of catching up to China's investment in research and development. Actually, China took a page from the U.S. playbook of several decades ago in ramping up our research and development capacity in order to assure a healthier, more prosperous and secure nation. Uh, President Xi Jinping of China um, is quoted on this slide from uh, the Science and Technology Action Committee, which we helped found and uh, continue to help lead. Uh, it, he says that we must regard science and technology as our primary productive force. Can I, can I ask you? Can I ask you about the chart on you, the one on, on China? Because you, it's pretty dramatic if you look at the line of the U.S. Sure. The percentage of global spending, research and development, at, back around 2000, it's almost 40 percent of uh, global spending on research and development is from the United States. What has caused this slide in research and development dollars from the United States? Well, I think it boils down to taking progress for granted. 
And that's, you know, it's a fact that as we all go about our daily lives, we don't think about science and technology very much or the importance of our taxpayer dollars going to support it. Actually, percentage-wise, very few of our taxpayer dollars support science and technology, and yet it is the key to the future. It always has been. So the rest of the world has been catching up to the United States, not just China, of course, but also Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Japan, um, Israel, uh, many countries who have made a commitment uh, via their national um, priorities to assuring that they have the they are benefiting from the promise of federal investment, which is all, all often at the most risky levels, and then the creation of public-private partnerships so important to advancing innovation and delivering on the solutions that we all aim for: health solutions, energy solutions, agriculture solutions. Um, security solutions. That was Mary Woolley from the group Research America. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.